as my dad used to say, Bryn, you know, uh, Bobby, there are three things Bobby hates. He hates America, he hates Jews, and he hates chess, right. which is interesting because he's an American Jewish chess champion. <laughs> yes, he is. Which kind of tells you all you need to know. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Tourist Information. I'm really happy this week to have Jeremy Schapp on the show. Jeremy Schapp is a sports writer, an author, a television reporter. He's an 11-time Emmy Award winner for his work on ESPN's E60, SportsCenter, and Outside the Lines. Jeremy is one of my favorite people in this industry. He has me on a lot to talk boxing uh, on his ESPN radio pro- radio program. Um, he really first came on my radar because his dad was very close friends and sort of a father figure to Bobby Fischer. And Jeremy actually won an Emmy for his work sort of following up on that relationship when Fischer was granted uh, a visa to Iceland and by that time was uh, just a virulent anti-Semite and focused some of that hatred on Jeremy's dad recounting their falling out and that sort of thing. So Jeremy was just a a very fun person to talk about, all the people that he's covered over his career, his own journey being a very famous sports writer's son. And um, yeah, I hope you enjoy this one. But uh, Jeremy's a great guy. I thought a place to start that was interesting is I was doing some research about you and your dad. Oh, that one, one of your... <laughs> one of I hope your, one of, no one's done any research. Yeah, well, one of the last things that your dad did publicly was right after September 11th, discuss the diminished role of sports with yeah. the backdrop of that tragedy. And I've been hearing rumors that there's a what's it called again, a global pandemic currently outside of our doors that uh, seem to have shut down all sports. Yes, it's, um, I've been thinking about the parallels between 9-11 and now, as I'm sure many people have. Um, You know, it was, it was um, like now uh, a situation that, uh, you know, kind of left us grasping for answers and trying to make sense of things. And, um, you know, there was there was the fear and um, there was the disruption and there was also, um, you know, the tragedy of it. Uh, you know, the immediacy of that tragedy, 3000 people dying essentially on that Tuesday morning, <clears throat> different than what we're experiencing now. Uh, in terms of the suddenness of, of of what happened, of course, but you know, it's still um, it's still unlike anything else we've dealt with in our lives. You know, there there was nine eleven, and there is this pandemic going on now. In terms of sports, after nine eleven, uh, they shut down sports, but they came back about ten eleven days later. You know, the NFL took off that weekend, baseball was off, but they were back the following week, and some sports events became, you know, these real um, um, 
these community affairs, these uh, opportunities for people to connect with each other after having been holed up for a while, um, mourning, um, especially if there were people they knew, um, but also just as a country kind of mourning and, and, and globally beyond the country. Now, of course, you know, and I wrote something about this this week for ESPN, you know, it's not some great insight or anything, but back then, you know, we did after a certain amount of time kind of have at least each other and we could take some comfort in that and we could, you want to go have dinner with your friends or you wanted to go to a bar and have a drink, something like that. Now, of course, um, it's such a different situation with so much uncertainty about how long this will last, uh, the social distancing that is. Uh, the disease itself, the epidemic, pandemic. Um, it's, it's, there are parallels just because, you know, there, there, there has been for the mass, vast majority of our lives, I'm 50, you're a little bit younger. Uh, you know, there, there's normal life. And then there was that period after 9-11, there's this period now. And uh, it's going to take some getting used to. And we don't know how long we're going to have to get used to it for. Well, apparently... We only have to get used to it until Easter, and then everything has been solved. That's quite reassuring. It it certainly seems uh, as if it's going to be longer than that. And <laughs> yes, uh, it does. You know, it's just um, it, it, it's it's frightening. Uh, I happen to live in a town in Connecticut where you know there is uh, you know it's a hot spot. There have been. Um, Last count, there are almost 90 cases here in a town of about 27,000, something like that. There's a story, you know, on the, um, what do you what do you call it digitally, on the front page, the digital front page, I guess, the New York Times about a party that took place in Westport that was this super spreading event. Uh, my hometown is New York City. Obviously, what's going on down there, I haven't been in the city now in, I think it's about 20, 26 days. And even then, 26 days ago, I think it was March 1st, March 2nd, whatever that Tuesday, whatever that Monday was, I think it was March 2nd. It's the last time I was in the city. Even then, you know, people were thinking about it. You could see in people's actions and the, a little bit. You know, I, I'm, I was certainly, you know, washing my hands more than typically thinking about things that you don't typically think about more than um, usual. And, uh, and I... I who knows, you know, who knows when, when it'll be safe, really, to go back to the city. Is it, I mean, I was wondering, I, I found it quite interesting with, let's say, just in my little parochial corner nook of boxing, that people are having real issues with ESPN providing all of these fights on, like the great highlights, they're putting on Pacquiao, Mayweather and stuff, and People are not really that interested at watching highlights. They want to watch their own highlights on YouTube. They don't want a, a, an external DJ curating mm -hmm. what they're watching. Where I thought there would have been some comfort in, I prefer listening to music where I stumble onto walking into a restaurant and you hear a song. It's a little sweeter than if you pick it out yourself a little bit, for me anyway. But I, I'm just wondering, like, what is it like with just all sports shut down for, for a whole massive network like that? It's, Quite yeah, different. I mean, um, you know, we're filling um, the air slots with re-airs of some documentaries. Uh, we've got so, a lot of 
you know, new programming. I was in studio the other day. We were putting together a number of shows, editions uh, of E60, you know, which is storytelling based, not uh, highlight driven. You know, coming up with alternative programming. I mean, I know they they uh, aired an old WrestleMania the other day, which mm. I think I. I mean, what do I, I, I never really know anything about rating, but I think they told me they got really good ratings airing an old WrestleMania. Um, mm. You know, I know there's a new WrestleMania coming up, I think next week, which they're doing without fans. Um, wow. You know, every day, pretty much this week, I've been on TV every day doing something. You know, obviously there are stories connected to the situation that we're covering. And there are other things going on in the world of sports that have nothing to do with coronavirus that we're covering. Tom right. Brady is now, you know, with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Uh, the U.S. women's uh, national team's lawsuit against the U.S. Soccer Federation. Did a segment on that last week. The Soccer Federation fired or, or its president was essentially forced to resign. Um, so there are other things going on that we're, we're still covering. And as I said, some of it's related. I interviewed Bob Baffert the other day about horse racing, which at that point was still going on and is still going on as we're speaking right now. Mm. Um, to a limited degree, uh, less limited than other sports. And, uh, you know, we'll see. I mean, I, I've said this before in the last few days, but, um, you know, how, how much content is there going to be in the absence of games? Uh, that's one of the considerations, of course, something that we have to deal with. But the other thing is, you know, and, and the hope is, that somehow we stem this tide and um, reverse the trends that we've been seeing uh, somehow, you know, and uh, and sports can maintain the relevancy for people's lives, and that it's it's not such an such an overwhelming horrific situation that people will say, well, who cares about sports? And at the same time, I know that um, people. Uh, when, when they are um, in tough situations, and I'm not sure if there's anything like this that we can really, um, you know, use this as, as an analogy, but, you know, they like to be able to turn on something else, too, and see something else uh, other than the sure. news. I, I know for me, at a certain point, I, I think the two weeks ago, whatever that week was, not this week or last week, like, I just was watching the news obsessively, and to kind of maintain some semblance of of mental health, I had to just limit myself. So I started watching a lot of 30 Rock reruns. Um, <laughs> and, and like, you know, the sillier, the better. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's, it's a luxury, I guess, that we usually take for granted that we can ignore the big picture. But sometimes you need to ignore the big picture because, again, if you if that's all you think about it, that's all you're obsessing about, um, I think it's going to be hard to stay sane. Well, and I, I wonder, I mean, maybe this, this dovetails a little bit with, you're the author of Cinderella Man, a wonderful book and a very acclaimed movie. Um, the backdrop of that, of course, is the Depression, which we're hearing a lot about, that we may be moving in that direction. There's just been a figure of around 3 million Americans just went on employment. Presumably that's going to continue with nobody being able to go back to work. God knows how people are going to pay their rent and all of that. Um, 
When you were working on James J. Braddock, you have the backdrop of the Depression, a symbol of the Depression, the courage to represent these people. I remember some, some wonderful images in the film that I, I think were in the, in the book also of him trying to teach his son to remain honest despite the temptations to steal when everybody's undergoing such hardships. Um, how, how much did your research for that book of, of Depression-era America inform maybe, maybe something to illuminate where we're at now or where we're headed with, with the struggles ahead? Yeah, you know, I, I hadn't really thought about that, but, you know, the Jim Braddock story, as you suggest, Bryn, really is about um, the Depression as much as it's about Jim Braddock personally, Jim Braddock the man. It's about um, how his career and his life dovetail um, with the great economic um, collapse of 1929 to 1935, especially when he won the title. Um, and um, it's instructive. Of course, there are very few people around these days uh, who are old enough to remember the Depression as, you know, fully formed human beings. You know, they were young. I mean, it, it you know, it, it reached its nadir 87 years ago, about, thereabouts, 87, 88 years ago. Um, and Jim Braddock was right in the middle of that. And he was a guy who had been very successful and had fought for the light heavyweight championship of the world and suddenly found himself penniless, couldn't pay the bills, um, you know, uh, went on relief, as it was called then, which we now know as welfare, which was humiliating for Braddock. Um, and, you know, it, it was a new concept then. And um, that's how he ends up becoming the people's hero uh, by, by rising up from those, the depths of that situation and capturing the championship from Max Baer. And, you know, you, you think about how lives were changed um, at that time, suddenly, so suddenly, the way that we're seeing it now, jobs disappearing. Um, I'm not an economist. <laughs> <laughs> the furthest thing from an economist, Bryn. I don't know, you know, I think we're all hoping that the economy rebounds in a way um, that we're, we're not plunged into something akin to the Great Depression of the 1930s. And that, um, you know, the, the underlying fundamentals of the economy, whatever they might have been, or, or you know, uh, before this, um, will be what's uh, crucial rather than what we hope will be this temporary, however many months long disruption. But uh, you know, people's lives are changed suddenly that way. And Jim Braddock's was, and in some ways his was maybe at the time in the mid 1930s, one of the most famous examples of someone who went from riches to rags and then subsequently back to riches again, right? His story is really a rags to riches to rags to riches story. Mm. And then um, he didn't maintain that wealth for the rest of his life, but he was comfortable. Um, yeah, it, it is, uh, <clears throat> you know, at that moment in time though, right? Uh, sports, in the 30s, sports were important to people, even when so much had collapsed in society around them. And, and there were sports heroes who 
who embodied people's hopes and dreams and gave them something um, something to cheer for. Braddock was, was one of the prime examples. And then, of course, the man who took the title from him as well, Joe Lewis. Um, um, let's hope we're not going into a Great Depression. <laughs> Do you think it's interesting with boxing, I mean, but with both Braddock being emblematic of a depression era blue collar worker that so many people could identify with joe lewis i think it was said of him was the first american that white america sorry the first african-american that white america cheered for right with, with the backdrop of the second world war and and the nazis and and fighting hitler's great champion um do you think it's interesting that boxing has been a vehicle for America to process a lot of things? Like it's enough of a distance away from real life to grapple with things in well, interesting it, ways? Yeah, I, I think it makes sense, right? I mean, yeah. um, for most of the 20th century, boxing was you know, either the most important or among the two or three most important sports. You know, it, it doesn't occupy that place today in the national consciousness. I think, you know, that's clear. Um, but when it did, you know, from from the rise of John L. Sullivan and the first, uh, you know, glove championship, uh, all the way through, I guess, probably the Mike Tyson era, with some some dips occasionally, you know, you know sure. there were plenty of times, as you know as well as I, when people said, "Boy, what's happened to boxing?" You know, the sport is dead, and there are no great champions anymore. And you know, whatever happened to Benny Leonard and uh, you know the, his ilk and Jack Dempsey? There were lamentations like that in the 1930s. I'm getting off, uh, you know, on a, a tangent here, but of course, after after Tunney was done. You know, and then you go, you've got Sharky and you've got Schmeling and you've got Carnera and you've got Bear and you've got Braddock. People thought maybe the heavyweight division was dead, right? Right. Um, before Lewis really revives it. I guess my point is back to your question that, um, yeah, the great boxing champions um, have stood for something um, beyond just their achievements in the rings. And they have been emblems of society at that moment in time. You know, whether it's Jack Johnson and all that he represented when he won the title and held it from 1908 to 1915 and the racial divisions in this country and the, you know, the racial inequality, obviously. Or if it's Dempsey in the Roaring Twenties and the boldness and the... Um, you, you you know what are the right ways to describe Jack Dempsey? I mean, he was uh, he was this unique, powerful, swaggering figure at a time when America was like that too. Um, and then you know, and then Joe Lewis and Marciano and Eisenhower era and Ali and the you know the disrupt in the civil rights era and. Um, and in the age of, you know, protest in the 60s and 70s, you know, uh, there, there have been, uh, and I'm just talking about the heavyweights. Um, sure. You know, there, there have been uh, people who are at the pinnacle of sport who, who do stand for more. Many of them have been in boxing. Um, I don't think we have a boxing hero now in this country who occupies that spot. I don't know if you disagree. 
Um, no, no, no. I, I, I thought about it when I went to Tuscaloosa to see the closest thing that it seems like we had right. with Deontay Wilder, and I went to visit the house where he grew up, and I was thinking, Southern fighter, same state as Joe Lewis, right. dirt, dirt poor, great story, great background, this little gym in the middle of the woods, um, this amazingly small town, warm community, but desolate poverty, especially focused with the African-Americans in, in that community. Why isn't this a bigger deal? Why isn't this guy selling a lot better? And, and he's knocking everybody out, and he's gigantic. You know, he's like a cartoon hero. What's missing here? Or why isn't there chemistry with him and America right now, the way you'd kind of think there should be? And now it's changed dramatically with what happened right. with Tyson Fury. But it was uh, it was kind of what I omitted in the story was just, shouldn't this home be a museum by now? Like, shouldn't... Right. Shouldn't this community be obsessed with him right now? But he just didn't seem to resonate that way, even in Tuscaloosa, let alone the broader American public. No, no. Um, I, I think, you know, I think right now, you know, you still got, you still got uh, Manny and some guys from that generation, a little bit younger who are around. But right now, I think Tyson Fury, after that fight, which was what? Four weeks ago, it feels like a million years ago now. Uh, five weeks ago, it feels like a million years. I think Tyson Fury is the biggest boxing star in the world right now. Have you uh, interviewed him? Yeah, you did interview yeah, him. Yeah, I spent you? some time with him uh, last year. Uh, last, I think it was late April, early May in, uh, in his hometown. And I went to England and spent some time with him. And it was, uh, it was interesting. He, I mean, he's a... It was kind of spellbound, spellbinding. I think we, we sat down for about a two-hour on-camera interview, you know, which is long. And I'd spent some time with him driving around the town. He was telling me stories. He, he's, as anyone can tell, a, a fascinating guy, compelling guy, uh, an intense guy. And um, you know, the candor with which he addresses his mental health issues over the years. It, it, it's unlike anything I've ever heard. I mean, the only person who comes close, but he doesn't come go nearly as far, is Tyson. Mm -hmm. Tyson, that is Mike Tyson, his namesake. His namesake, <laughs> right. Which is bizarre too, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. The odds you're going to name your son after the world heavyweight champion, and he'll become world heavyweight champion. I mean, it's, it's kind of a self-fulfilling sure. uh, prophecy. But um, he... Uh, and, you know, I think part of it might be, you know, the accent, but it really is the way he has a remarkable way with words. Mm. And um, <laughs> I, I appreciated somebody who kind of makes his living in the world of words. I pre appreciate someone who fi he finds such uh, compelling ways to tell his story. And he, it's almost as if, I'm not saying, at least I'm not suggesting in any way that he's making it up because we know he's not, but he delivers it like a Shakespearean actor, or at least, mm. you know, an actor from like a Guy Ritchie film or something like that. Right, you know, right, it, it's, right. it's, he's got this way with words and the, you know, the, um, you know, the, the English slang, some of it, which, you know, is, is, um, unusual for us to hear I, I just found him to be a spellbinding storyteller and he goes deep 
And then you go back and you look at those videos, those interviews that he was doing at the time when he was really in a dark, scary place and contemplating, he said, suicide. I mean, it's all right there. Right, I mean, he's right. sitting there doing an interview. Uh, it's like him and, and uh, Vladimir being interviewed at the same time by a prominent um, uh, broadcaster in the UK. And they're sitting at this table and he's sitting there talking, I mean, talking in ways that you never see anyone uh, talk in public about his lack of self-esteem and his jealousy and uh, the meaninglessness of his life from his perspective. It, it's, it's amazing. It's frightening. And then, and then to, at this, at the same time, see him at this moment, like, I don't, I think he's an extraordinary fighter, a guy that size, doing what he's doing, coming back from being 900 pounds like he was in very rapidly dropping all yeah. that weight. That is a very rare thing to yeah. see some, somebody come back to, to that level of athleticism. But the way he commands center stage, I have not seen somebody enjoy it like that since really Ali, where it's like mm -hmm. you're going in there against Foreman and he looked as if my time has arrived to sh show people something That's that, right. you know, it's, it's, it's like Orson Welles didn't want applause. He wanted gasps. And like uh, applause was an insult to him. Right. When he would go on stage, if he brought a knife on stage, he didn't like it unless it glinted. And you couldn't get a fake knife to do that. So he'd bring a real knife on it. He stabbed somebody with it because I need them to gasp. And right. there was an element of that with Tyson Fury. I remember going into that fight. I almost always lean towards predicting the underdog is going to win. 99 times out of 100, I lose. With Fury, I was right. Because I just said, if he does what he says he's going to do, he's bigger, he's longer. He's fighting somebody who's the worst boxer I've ever seen in training, Deontay Wilder. Greatest right yeah. hand I've ever seen, but the yeah. worst boxer Amazing. I've ever seen. Amazing. And I was like, well, if, if he does what he says and just charges forward, I've never seen Deontay Wilder fight on his heels. Nobody's ever backed him up. This guy's taller and longer. Um, he's 270 pounds practically. If he's connecting with anything, he's going to hurt him. Wilder doesn't have a good chin. This is not so far-fetched if he actually has the gumption to go ahead and do it and then to watch it and just see him no stress on his face no tension, pleasure. Like it just, it threw me right back to those moments of Ali where it's, if you wrote it as a script, you say, ah, this is sappy, this would never happen. And there it is in real life. It was, it was quite something to watch it. No, you're right. Um, the way that he soaks it all in and he's clearly living in the moment and enjoying it and leading everyone, you know, in, <laughs> through through the long version of American Pie, uh, <laughs> you know, well, well, not the radio, uh, you know, uh, no. the, the full Don McLean. Um, it, it's 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 uh, it's been fun to watch. It really has, and I was um, I was among those skeptical, uh, especially after he weighed in, and he was heavier than he'd been yeah. for the first fight. And that did not seem like a good sign to me, nor had the split with his trainer, Ben Davison. But uh, he clearly knew what he was doing.
Yeah. Well, let's let's look at you instead of the world of boxing for a little bit because I'm interested. I don't know that there are a lot of second generation sports writers. I mean, you see it in athletics a lot more, but Mark Cram, senior and junior. I mean, there's a, there's a handful of them, mm-hmm. but oh, I'm curious as a little kid growing up. The Lardners. Are, the Lardners. That's true. Yeah, yeah. I just just interviewed somebody this morning, and and that was referenced also. Um, I my best friend growing up. His Not dad that I'm was comparing the Shaps to the Lardners. Let me make no, that. No, no, no. Well, I mean, no, not comparing myself anyway. But you know, John Lardner. My dad worked with John Lardner at Newsweek, mm-hmm. and he idolized him. He thought mm-hmm. I think he thought John was the greatest sports writer ever. Oh, interesting. Well, so I'm curious when you're a little kid growing up in New York City, and your dad. I'm not sure how old your dad was when he had you. Thirty-four. So he was already in the industry by then? Oh, yeah. He was already yeah. a famous guy in the industry at that point, although he hadn't been on TV at that point. He'd been oh. very successful, you know, very successful writer, new magazine writer. Um, then he was newspaper columnist at the Herald Tribune, and he'd written up to that. Well, he had just published the year before what at the time was the best-selling sports book ever, Instant Replay. So with Jerry Kramer my namesake. Um, so uh, he, he, was, he was quite successful, but he had not ventured into TV yet. What was it like for you growing up with that? Was that a fun thing to have around you as a backdrop? Oh, it was great. I mean, I was the luckiest kid in the world. As a kid who was obsessed with sports, right. you know, what could possibly be better? And this, it's funny, though, because the sports that really interested me, I, eventually I became more uh, eclectic. But as a kid, it was really baseball and boxing. Those were the ones that interested me most. Uh, And some Olympic history, too. But really, like, you know, my weekends were typically my father taking me up to 30 Rockefeller Plaza, where he worked for NBC. And I just kind of had to amuse myself while he was working all day. And I was probably, you know, I was the only kid in the building. And, you know, I remember I I have it somewhere on my shelf right here. Uh, I'm in my office. Um an encyclopedia of boxing champions. I remember taking that book to 30 Rock and that was one of my Bibles and then all the baseball books that I memorized. And it really, it really all started. I can pinpoint the date, which is I think unusual that I became a big sports fan. I had just turned eight and my father took me October 18th, 1977 to game <laughs> six of the World Series. Wow. And of course that's the famous game where the Yankees won the World Series for the first time in that's 15 years and uh which in new york is a long time and um and it's the game where reggie jackson hit three home runs on three consecutive pitches sosa hooten and huff were the dodgers pitchers and even a kid who who just turned eight and didn't really i wasn't although my i was always around sports because my dad i wasn't really immersed in them um as a spectator that just like it was like a switch going off or light going off. And um, I, th- I think we got home probably around midnight or something like that from the Bronx uh, to Manhattan. And I think I stayed up all night like reading baseball history books, which I'd never done before. And I think by the morning, my father said anyway, I, I didn't really have any, you know, 
uh, memory myself. He said, by the morning, I, I, I knew that only Ruth had previously hit three home runs in a World Series game in 26 and 28. And then uh, I've been insufferable, as he liked to say, ever since. Did you, did you know pretty much from that point onward, like what your dad was doing, I want to do that too? You know, I wouldn't say I wouldn't say that. I would say um, it was an evolution. There were other things that interested me as well. But by my sophomore year of high school, I would say, yeah, I want to work in in the media. I want to work in, you know, uh, in TV or newspapers or magazines. I want to write or be on TV. Something I, I didn't know if I wanted it to be specifically about sports mm. or you know, on the news side. Um, but yeah, I, I, that was the industry definitely that, that I was into. Oh, let me just close my door for a second. Yeah, 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 yeah. Sorry. I don't know. So what? yeah, that was, that was what I wanted to do. I mean, why wouldn't you? It seemed like my dad had the best job in the world. Right. I mean, he was always working, but he loved it. He said it never felt like work, you know, the, the cliche, because he loved what he was doing. And nobody loved what he did more than my dad. Mm. Even, though he, good... even though it was hard writing. I mean, he was writing a lot. You know, he was, he was always on deadline. He was always pumping out books. And, um, you know, it was both the bane of his existence and, uh, you know, <laughs> the, the wellspring of his, of his joy. <laughs> So, you know, it, it was a, it was a dichotomy. He'd complain about how much work he had, and then he would take on more. Was he friends with a lot of the other journalists? Or I'm sure he was. Like the other major, was Jimmy Cannon somebody he was friends with, for example? No, you know, Jimmy was a lot older. Um, he knew Cannon. Okay, uh, that I remember. But but he was much closer to Red Smith, Cannon's right. contemporary. Red Smith was was a good friend. And he idolized Red Smith the way that he had idolized John Lardner. Um, in terms of his peers, you know, he, his best friend, you know, my dad really had, I would say, three best friends. And um, they were all pretty interesting guys. Um, Jimmy Breslin. Yeah. Oh, great one. Wow. From the age of 15. So when he was 15 and Jimmy was 19, they were essentially the sports staff at, I think the paper was the Nassau Review Star on Long Island. Amazing. And huh. Jimmy was the assistant sports editor and my dad was the writer, basically their sole reporter. 15, high school in Freeport. And, and as Jimmy used to like to say, you know, 19 year old editor and 15 year old reporter, you can imagine what a good paper it was. Um, <laughs> they maintained that friendship, you know, for the rest of my father's life. And then, uh, his other best friends were Herb Gardner, the playwright, wrote uh, Thousand Clowns, uh, I'm Not Rappaport, um, brilliant guy, sweet guy. They were in the army together. That's where they met. Hmm. And, and Jerry Kramer, um, uh, my godfather, uh, the great and now Hall of Fame right guard for the Packers. Huh. Interesting. What were these other jobs you were, or, or pursuits you were going to have outside of sports? I'm curious. Oh, boy. That's a good one. You know, um, 
I don't know. I think I was I was a kid who always was a history buff, very interested in history. And so, you know, I'm sure at some point I wanted to be, you know, a congressman or a senator or something like that. And I was also even more specifically a military history buff. Um, and huh. I was, you know, I, I, I'm still a military history buff, but I was probably more knowledgeable when I was 12 than I am now. And, you know, there's nothing I enjoyed more than a trip to West Point and talking, um, talking with veterans, particularly World War II veterans about their experiences. And I was in this, this kind of after school military club they have in New York called the Knickerbocker Grays. Um, very old school waspy thing. I think I was one of two Jewish cadets. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> And so I'm sure at some point I wanted to go to West Point and be in the military. Um, but eventually it uh, became about uh, journalism. Well, and your, and your dad wrote a biography on Robert F. Kennedy as well. So it sounds like, you know, he was he did. Very, very, very interested in things outside sports as well. He also wrote one. Yeah, he was a general columnist, the Herald Tribune, yeah. uh, when he and Breslin were on the same op-ed page. Um, for three or four years there, 63 to 67, when the paper came back as the World, it folded, the Herald Tribune folded and then became the World Journal Tribune briefly. Um, he wrote a biography uh, just after the paper folded of Robert F. Kennedy as he was expected to run for president in 1968 and eventually, of course, did. Um, and uh, decade after that, more than a decade after that, he wrote a biography of Teddy um, which remains unpublished. Uh, hmm. He was writing it during the 1980 campaign. And, you know, although I don't remember the specifics, it's 40 years ago, I was nine years old, but, um, you know, w when, when Carter secured uh, the nomination again um, and, and Kennedy conceded, at the convention at that point, I guess the publishers weren't interested anymore. I think they were only interested in a, a book if Teddy was the nominee. Right. It's interesting. Just the other day and today, I'm going to go for a hike in Chappaqua and just for fun, you could just look up the oh, Clintons address. Right by the Clintons. And I, and I wanted to see their, the compound. It was such a frightening, fortified fortress of oh, intimidation. Really? Oh my God. It's, it's like 9,000 cameras glaring at you wow. and the secret service SUVs are out front. Not a friendly, welcoming little fun place <laughs> to go by. I'm sure I was dry sniped by some sniper on the roof. <laughs> um, well, and, <laughs> and I guess from there, I mean, one of the, I think the first time I met you was actually that your dad had this incredible friendship with Bobby Fischer when Fischer was a young guy. Um, you won an Emmy, and, and I didn't mention earlier, I, I saw, uh, I think your show received a number of Emmy nominations today. Uh, yeah, that's right. That's right. It did. It did. Yeah, so congrats on that. Thank you. Um, but you. But you won an Emmy for your show, a very interesting father-son exploration of Bobby Fischer. And... I remember watching, it's one of those shows that I kept watching because I just thought it was so interesting trying to, un I was a little skeptical of whether this was this great opportunity for you because your dad had this impossible friendship with such an impossibly interesting person. And I was like, does Jeremy really 
is this emotionally resonating with him or is there some performance art mm. with him feigning outrage, you know, because no matter what, like nobody has the in that you do with this guy. Nobody has a personal connection to this guy. I interviewed earlier Frank Brady, who grew up yeah. being a very good friend with him and was cut off by Fisher because he mentioned, unfortunately, that Fisher was Jewish in his biography, which was the only thing that Fisher took exception to. And of course, it's patently true. Right. Um, but he said he, he didn't want it mentioned in the biography. Um, you received well, a somewhat... As my dad used to say, Bryn, you know, uh, Bobby, there are three things Bobby hates. He hates America, he hates Jews, and he hates chess, right. which is interesting because he's an American Jewish chess champion, <laughs> yes, he is. which kind of tells you all you need to know. Right. And I mean, earlier we were talking about how boxing has been emblematic of where America's been. Well, let's let's times that by a thousand, and you get Bobby Fischer's role as maybe the most famous face on earth, with the backdrop of the Cold War, playing this this game, moving wooden pieces. Somehow, this captivates the nation and is being broadcast in Times Square, and is front page news on the New York Times day after day after day. Now, there's a like a, a lot of other big news stories at the time beyond Watergate and Vietnam wiping out tens of thousands of Americans. Um, but no, just impossible to imagine that chess could occupy right. that kind of prominence. And your dad has this corridor of intimacy with him when he's just, I think this is 1955. You know, he's a... Yeah, maybe, maybe a couple of years later. I think when would, when would Fisher have been 12? I think that's when they met. 54. He was born in 42. Yeah, so starting in 50, I don't know how, oh, I guess it must have been his summer internship or something. He had he had some summer internships because he didn't get out of college until fifty five. But I know I'm pretty sure he knew Fisher starting at twelve. I think I'm wrong. I think Fisher was nineteen forty four because he died okay. at the age that of sixty four, two thousand eight. So my mistake. Would have, that's, that's when my dad went to work at Newsweek, and I think that's really where their association uh, was born because he was writing stories about the twelve year old national champion. He was the U.S. champion at twelve, wasn't he? Yeah, oh yeah. yeah, 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 youngest ever. And I wonder, like, what a, what a, what an opportunity. I want to talk a bit about what it was like for you to become such a prominent journalist, you know, on Nightline and, and different news networks as well as so prominently with sports. But this connective tissue of, of like, a godfather two-worthy saga of father-son reporting on the same guy with a real weird delineation of him pulling a J.D. Salinger to disappear from the world in between... Um, rejecting millions of dollars to come back. Um, what, what was it like to embark on a story like that with such a deranged figure? Yeah, you know, it, it's funny, Britt, because the way the story ended up and what happened uh, at this this um, press conference in Iceland where it became this kind of personal encounter between Bobby and me and it was about my dad and his relationship with my dad and and I think Bobby's illness um that wasn't what I was thinking about I was just like many people was just fascinated by Bobby Fisher some of it of course because of the connection with my father by the time I went to see him and do this story my father had been dead for a few years maybe that enhanced um, you know, my desire to do this story at some level, which I wasn't even necessarily aware of. But uh, 
he's just a great story, Bobby Fischer. He's just one of those great stories that no one had been able to tell. And he, he's one of the he's one of the white whales, right? In yeah, journalism, yeah. beyond sports. You know, there's the great Bill Knack story about trying oh, to get spending so good years trying to get him. And uh, Bill was a good friend of mine, the late Bill Knack, one of the great um, magazine writers. Brilliant um, writer. But, uh, you know, ultimately nobody had ever done kind of the ultimate Bobby story. Nobody had gotten a chance to speak to him or have him give him the, you know, he'd be given the opportunity, certainly, but he'd never accepted it to sit down and, uh, and talk about things. And my hope was somehow it would happen. I mean, you know, you know, that somehow I'd get a chance to interview him for whatever reason and, and we'd get somewhere. But honestly, I mean, not not at any level, I think, was I thinking to myself that this is going to be about him and my dad. Um, I was hoping maybe that would um, would predispose him in some way to give me a shot to talk to him. But I also knew, you know, what we had seen from his mind over the years. I honestly didn't know if he really would have any strong memories of my father and their relationship. This is... 30 years after they'd last seen each other. This isn't like a weekly, this is 30 years. Now, Bobby had a lot of influences in his life. It's not as if my father was the guy who was there every day, like Brady. No, he was a guy, he was his guy in the media. You know, he was, for many people, kind of the Bobby whisperer, if that's the right word, to some extent, interviewing him in Iceland during the tournament. And he, my father, I think, was the master of ceremonies at Bobby Fisher Day when he came back with the championship in New York at City Hall. There are pictures of it. Oh. Um, and they'd spent all this time together. But uh, I, when, I, when I finally got next to him in Iceland, and he's in this Range Rover, and he's leaving the airport, and I'm trying to, like, you know, get something. And I'm saying, you know, you remember, you know, I'm, my dad was Dick Chappell. I honestly don't know in his state of mind whether that meant anything to him. But it became apparent that it did. Boy, did it. I mean, and let's let's be fair. Like, Fisher characterized his relationship with your dad as saying it was very much a father-son relationship. So it wasn't just a media guy. They're no, hanging out. No, no, and I, I don't mean to say that. No, I know, I know, I know, I know. Yeah. Uh, but but I, I'm talking from my viewpoint, I'm like, you know, I was not, I was alive, but I was a toddler when this relationship basically ended. So, you know, I hadn't seen it up close. I only knew the stories. And... You know, they had been close. And then, you know, my father was cut out of his life, like just about everybody else. And, you know, uh, you know, people move on from some relationships and, and, you know, they can they can forget them. Or, you know, maybe some part of me thought, you know, there were probably 20 people like that in Bobby's life who he had moved on from. Uh, and maybe there were. But, um, uh, <laughs> you know, what, what happened was... Um, what happened was crazy, and it was, it was unlike anything you know I expect ever to um, see in my career. And and the way that he remembered specific things that my father had said, specific oh. things that I remembered him having said, and uh, of course, and you know more about chess, vastly more than I do. Of course, you know you have to have these um, you have to have these incredible. Uh, analytical powers and all that, but you also have to have an incredible memory. Sure. Just people don't forget. You, know, you <laughs> have to have, right. you have to remember, you have to have 
an incredible memory, like a world-class memory to be among the greatest chess players of all time. So of course he hadn't forgotten anything. I don't know what I was thinking. Well, and, and I mean, what a situation. Because I remember watching and trying to get into your head. I had never met you. I didn't know you this years before I met you. But just thinking, I've seen Jeremy. I love whenever Jerry, Jeremy comes on to introduce these sports shows and stuff. I like this guy. This is the story of his dad? Relationship with Bobby Fear. What? Yeah. Why didn't I know that? But I mean, it's before my time. I'm, I'm 1979. Fisher is a rumor. I'm introduced to him. My gateway drug is searching for Bobby Fisher, which presents him that um, he's a completely stable person who's not a virulent anti-Semite or cheering no, I on. I, I don't think I've seen the film since it was in the theaters. Is, is, is it just, is the film's take basically that he just becomes a hermit because he can't deal with the success? It doesn't deal with any of the... Uh, any, uh, any not, craziness? Not that he's avoiding it. He's above it. He's spiritually above it. We're the crass thing that he's avoiding because he's a way getting stronger. He's J.D. Salinger. It was just such a fascinating way to turn this wild jungle of weirdness into this safe petting zoo of uh, this little kid who's aspiring to be Bobby Fischer. Bobby Fischer is this hero that America can feel good about. And then you start researching it and it's like, Whoa, this is a really frightening guy, a paranoid schizophrenic, uh, 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 alleged by many people. Some people, Frank Brady, say he wasn't ill. He was just a rotten person. There's a lot of different takes on it. Um, but he, I, that seems that seems hard at some level to accept. Yeah, I agree. I, I'm just saying, like, there are different right, accounts sure. on it. I don't know of a psychiatrist that assessed him, so everybody's kind of doing it remotely. Um, but... He's in Japan. He's arrested, traveling on a false passport. He's given interviews where he sounds like Slim Pickens in Dr. Strangelove, uh, you know, gleefully dropping the bomb on the Ruskies is sort of the way he's acting about America, thrilled that 9-11 happened. Oh, could have a pretty good weekend in Vegas. Yeah. Right, right. So Iceland, interestingly enough, is sympathetic to virulent anti-Semites, ex-chess champions, gives him a passport to come in. There's Jeremy at an airport yeah. welcoming him, welcoming his plane landing and yelling that his dad is Jeremy is is Dick Shap, and he goes right to you to say you were that guy at the airport. At the airport last night. It's true. It's crazy. And I and I watched your face, and it was just one of those moments that was, oh my god, how did this this must be scripted? This yeah. must be scripted between the two of them, except it's not, and off he goes. Just like those radio interviews, I believe the term was, your dad was a typical Jewish snake. Yes, I think those were the exact words. Or he Charming. said, then like, a, I, you know, he said something like, then like a typical Jewish snake, he turned on me or and had the most yeah. horrible things to say about me. <laughs> and, you know, the irony is, uh, and there, there's a lot of irony, um, you know, the thing that, that stuck with Bobby and still bothered him. This is years after my father's death, decades after they last spoke, was that he was quoted in a story saying, you know, Bobby doesn't have a sane bone in his body. Right. And you can understand how that would be upsetting to someone. I, I mean, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not disputing that. But honestly, that came from a place, my father was not somebody hammering Bobby. He said it in the sense like, hey, <laughs> you know, this is not someone who is evil. This is someone who is disturbed. 
He was, in his way, defending him by saying that. Right. Of course, Bobby, and that is his right, did not, uh, did not appreciate being called crazy. Yeah, what was it, that beautiful accent he had? Your dad rapped me really hard. Right, wow. Yeah. It was crazy, Bryn. It was really crazy. It was um, one of those, I mean, I, it's, it's one of those weird um, cliches, but it was like an out-of-body experience. Like, I'm, I was standing there, you know, you're in this hotel in Reykjavik, Iceland, which I think I had gotten to 24 hours earlier. I'd never been it, it, this was before it was this big popular, you know, tourist destination, really. It was right, 2005. Right, right, right. Nobody had been to Iceland, uh, except my dad <laughs> during the tournament, um, and Bobby and, and Spassky. And, and, um, and I'm like, I can't believe this is actually happening. Like, this is this weird exchange. And, and there were only a couple of American journalists there. There were the four of us in, in our crew from ESPN myself, the producer, John Fish, the cameraman, and the audio man, John Malashevsky, and, and Aaron Fruitman. But then I, th only, I think there was only one other American in the room, as far as I could tell. And there was an Englishman writing for The Guardian. And then there were like 40 or 50 other people. I think it was that many. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it was 20, 30, whatever it was. It and looked big. It was big. And they're asking him questions you know, about like if he's going to go whale watching. Or if he's going to learn, <laughs> learn the language. I, I'm not kidding. And I'm standing there dumbfounded. Uh, I'm like, Bobby Fisher's doing a press conference. And you're not asking him about <laughs> stuff that matters. Yeah. So I felt obligated to do so. Well, not just obligated, I wanted to. And um and then that whole thing happened. Well, and I wonder. I remember it was said about J.D. Salinger that he was one of the few people in American life where just seeing him was an event. Right. Just, just to see him get out of his car. I mean, it's kind of like, like, Greta like when I was a little, like Greta Garbo or, you know, you see a red panda or a, a tiger at the zoo. It can take a shit or just do anything. And the kids are like, woo, this was money well spent. I'm that sure was a better red panda. I've seen red pandas. They're pretty ordinary. Like oh, a, how dare the you. big giant pandas. <laughs> how dare you? That's a different love story. <laughs> Red panda is like basically a squirrel. But well, go on. Squirrel, raccoon, panda right. in one. Yeah. Um, but I, I, there's something about Fisher for me that he's one of those ones. Like I went to Salinger's house in 2006, four years before he died. And I just was filming his mailbox. And to know that the old man was up there at 86 still was an event. It was just an event. Have we talked about before that he wrote uh, Catcher in the Rye in Westport? That's now like no. accepted. Yeah, that's now accepted. That he, And I know where. It's something, I guess it was a mystery for a long time, like where he actually wrote the book. Was it in 46, I think, right? Well, as many, he also had it in World War II. He had it while he was there, like, because it originally was a short story to the New Yorker called, like, A Slight Rebellion Off Madison. Uh -huh. so I'm not saying that he didn't write, no. rewrite some of it. Yeah, I, I guess, yeah, I guess the most of the completed book was written in Westport. Here, that's my impression, anyway. I could be wrong. They no, also no, say no, no. Great Gatsby. You know that East Egg or West Egg or whatever it is might be Westport because Fitzgerald and and Zelda lived in Westport at that time that he was writing. Uh -huh. it. 
That's but I've that's wondered, here to there. No, no, no. But it's interesting. But I, I wonder just for you, where I mean, if if, if we went through a path, a pantheon of the great athletes or prominent figures in American life, you've been in front of a lot of them live, mm -hmm. right? A mm -hmm. lot of them. Yeah, I'm sure. Probably presidents too. I'm guessing. Two. Yeah. I have this feeling that Fisher, like Harry Benson, for example, I interviewed him for the, the Grandmaster when I was researching it. And the reason I, I focused on him was because he said, I've photographed every president since I think the late 50s onwards and everybody in American life going forward yeah. from 19, what, I think he was on the plane with the Beatles and then was right. here ever since. He said, far and away, the most interesting person I ever photographed was the most interesting person I ever met, Bobby Fischer, same guy. And I don't give a shit about chess at all. And interesting. I wonder, I wonder for you, like... Because he's not the type of guy you'd like to have a beer with. No, <laughs> no, no, no. He was just saying, interesting, No, no, I know. That's why it's interesting. You know, and, I, and I just wonder for you, watching you... Yeah, just watching you with Fisher in the room, in the flesh, I don't think you'd ever met him before, presumably. Uh, well, as a kid, when I was two or three. Doesn't count. You, I mean, okay, I so you don't remember? My parents threw a, a dinner party for him after he came uh -huh. back from Iceland. You know, so I wouldn't have been there. I wouldn't have been anywhere else as a toddler, but I definitely, you know, didn't know him. Yeah, you would have been two or three years old, yeah. three years old at the time. Um was who were like was he somebody special to be in the presence of i know at times where i've had to do an interview with somebody where i've known them as a little kid it's very different than somebody who's a next generation champion because they just don't resonate with you the same way they do when they were so distant from you when you're a little kid maybe you're different with this but was fisher a big deal to cover as a, an well, icon, it was a big deal to be in the room. Just the fact that we got to a point that we were we were actually at a Bobby Fisher press conference and could ask him questions that had been, you know, a goal, or maybe maybe dream is too strong, but it certainly been something we'd hope been hoping for for a long time. I didn't think there would be a press conference. I was really hoping for a sit down interview, and and it all happened so yeah. quickly and so suddenly that morning in Iceland that. And our interactions were in front of, again, dozens of other people. So it's different than, you know, an intimate setting where you're interviewing someone. But, um, I mean, the whole thing was so bizarre and um, discombobulating that uh, I wasn't really thinking about his charisma or magnetism. You know, he, uh, you know, he, he was... He was, again, someone who uh, we'd hoped to be able to get in the chair. I had hoped, others had hoped, um, to sit down and interview and profile and tell the story. One of the great, you know, mysteries. Why, right. why he decided to disappear. Why he decided not to defend the title. Why he decided to turn on so many people, virtually all the people, right, who had, who had um, been there to support him. And who'd also benefited from their association with him. Sure. Um, and uh, but he wasn't someone who walked into the room and commanded it, you know. OK, OK. Except, I mean, I, I mean, he does in the sense that he was the focus. Everybody's in the room for one reason to see him and ask him questions and turn on their cameras and their microphones and look at him. But uh, uh, it wasn't uh, like this um, 
kind of a, you know electric moment to me at that point. I guess I guess I just I mean it in the sense of the context that intrigues me. I remember Errol Morris said, "If you introduce Hitler to any subject, it's Hitler is not a spice. You put him into any subject, it becomes Hitler soup." And Bobby Fischer is not a spice. He, mm. it, it's Fisher soup. No matter who the hell you're talking about, it becomes about Fisher. And I've heard people talk about that. I think you mentioned it. There was an E60 meeting that you televised with Tyson where you're talking to a group of people. It's a very interesting discussion, like meta, but it was, it, mm -hmm. it was very grippy. where you said, it's years now since Tyson has fought. And when you go to an award show and there's Shaquille O'Neal or all of these other big figures, Tyson walks in, it's Tyson's room. Same principle that I'm talking about with the Yeah, no, I, that's spice. true. That's true. I'm just wondering, what are some of the figures that have been like that for your career to cover? Not just in sports, but just people that occupy that kind of role. You know, the big guys, um, you know, so I, I, I've been, you know, I got out of school in 91. So I've basically been working in the industry since then. The guys that I covered closely were kind of, you know, um, giants in terms of the space they occupied in the sports landscape. Mike Tyson, uh, Lance Armstrong, um, you know, I, 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 Michael Jordan was that, but I wasn't around him much at all, only, only little, so he didn't really count for me. Um, <laughs> you know, the, <laughs> those are two guys that I spent a lot of time around, Armstrong and, and Tyson. And in different, in very different ways, uh, both incredibly compelling and incredibly flawed. Um, um, and uh, fascinating, fascinating guys. Now there, there are so many others I've spent time with. You know, guys that well, I'm maybe more fond of <laughs> that I would rather spend time with, stuff like that. But. But uh, in terms of, you know, constantly interesting, fascinating, bright, um, those guys yeah, kind of yeah. leap off the page at you. Now, you know, he, you know, uh, he, he wasn't, he's not as big a star. I, I always thought that Landon Donovan was a very interesting guy that way. Mm -hmm. um, um, you know, complex. Um, you know, that's a different question, obviously, than the guys who have been big stars that I've gotten to spend time around who I really you know, enjoyed, you know, I like Tim Howard comes to mind, just the best, you know. Um, um, but, you know, there are, you know, there are guys we, you know, there, there are stories that stick with you and personalities that stick with you. But for some reason, when I think about the guys who I spent a lot of time around, covered them a lot at the height of their power, well, not Tyson at the height of his powers, actually later, but the guys who are really compelling in so many ways, um, certainly, yeah, Tyson and Armstrong stand out. Well, and, and you you recently you recently went to Tyson and confronted him about such an unusual angle with with the molestation, and it was so fascinating to see his response to that kind of question. I mean, the way he was metabolizing it in real time caught him off guard it seemed like initially but it was such a an unusual angle and i followed the resonance of that on social media and 
it seemed to catch the public very off guard about yeah. the aspects well, in which he course, was a victim. I mean, most... You know, I would not have gone in that direction if I had not been talking to you and you had not brought to my attention that element of his story, which had largely gone un unprobed other than by you, um, but had not really been addressed, uh, as I recall, on TV in a profile. And he'd written about it right. in his book, in, a in his most recent book, or maybe it was the previous book. I, he's had several memoirs now. Um, yeah. But, you know, when you mentioned it to me, I, you know, it, it seemed like, and, and you suggested exploring it further. I thought that was obviously the right call. And when we did so, it, it, it did lead to an interesting place. What was the response on social media? I, I don't remember. I think it was very positive. I mean, I wanted to ask you, the the ability for Tyson to recycle himself into now it seems like a feel good story for the most part oh, yeah. he has he has his marijuana ranch and he's getting involved in all that he has a, a podcast where he's interviewing all kinds of people but he's this lovable giggly innocuous kind of figure like nothing like the guy in no. the early nineties or let alone the eighties version of him but I find it interesting a guy convicted of rape who denied the legitimacy of that conviction, but did acknowledge to Jim Gray that he did, I believe it was five to six worse things than that which he was right. accused. So that guy, and, and I'm not trying to editorialize it, but just to put that in context, um, the way that people have allowed him back into society in a very cancel culture society. No, it's, it's amazing. It's amazing. It's an amazing story how he now occupies this place where he's welcome on the couch of any late night talk show host. And right. he, you know, he um, he stars in movies. He's a convicted rapist. Right. Uh, uh, you know, I guess a lot of it has to do with the fact that he was allowed to resume his career in boxing when he got out of prison in 1995. And so he remained part of the story for 10 years after that in the sport. So, you know, yeah. if, if it had been a situation in which he'd gone to prison longer, if he'd never fought again, you know, he was in prison for only three years, uh, only three years after being convicted of rape. Yeah. Um, um, if it'd been longer, if he hadn't come back and had those two fights with Holyfield and uh, the fight with Lewis, and then, you know, the, you know, you know, not that it mattered Etienne and McBride and all that, but he was always part of the story. And yeah. he kept thinking it would end, especially in 2002 after he lost to Lewis, but the fascination remained. Um, but if he had not been licensed to fight again, and if he had been older and kind of he had exited the public eye, with the conviction, I think it would have been a different story. Yeah. Well, and what did you make then with Kobe Bryant, like the, the approbation that, that Kobe, I mean, it seemed like an RFK assassination backdrop with how people were responding, where I, uh, I, just, I just wasn't sure how to feel about it. I certainly didn't want to comment about it publicly, but I was just struck by this is, very odd given, I studied the details of that trial pretty closely as it was unfolding. 
uh, it was highly disturbing. Highly disturbing, not yeah, just. I, 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 yeah. I don't know if you remember, Bryn, but um, you know, I, I was on the air um, several times in the days following uh, Kobe's death, and uh, many shows I was kind of in the position of reminding people of what had happened in Eagle, Colorado, in terms of you know we don't you know. Uh, the charges and the seriousness of the case against him. Um, and that was cer certainly something, you know, at the time when it, I think it was 2003, uh, we were talking about a lot on, on shows like Outside the Lines. And I, at one point, was sent up to Boston to try to talk to Kobe about it. I'd been there on the day when he declared that he was skipping college to go right into the NBA. So I'd seen him when he was an 18 year old. And it followed his career all the way through. And, and you know, the, the Kobe um, reaction is interesting. I did a parting shot on my show, Outside the Lines, um, that week. And I think I quoted uh, Mark Antony in Shakespeare's Julius Caesar when he says, uh, um, the good men do is often turred with their bones. The evil lives on after them. Mm -hmm. um, and... I said, that's, I think that that's the quote, right? Yeah, the, I think that's, I think that's the quote. It says, you know, we've come to bury, not to praise. And I said, you know, clearly with Kobe Bryant, what had happened is um, there had been so much time since Colorado where he had, he had made fans and he had done admirable things and he had become this, uh, this seemingly model father to his girls and a champion of women's sports. And um, so it was complicated. And the question is how do you, you know, the, 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 journalistically it's not complicated. It's, there's a totality. These are the things he was accused of. These are other things that he did in his life. You can process those things the way you wish, but we're going to, you know, we're going to cover all of it. And people question me, like, why would you bring that stuff up? The man just died tragically with his daughter. And was it 12 total people, I think, died in the crash? Um, you know, what, why, you know why, why bring that up now? I said, well, that's, that's what you do as a journalist. You, you, you give them the, the whole picture. You know, one thing doesn't cancel out the other thing, doesn't negate it, but it happened. And, and... Um, we don't know what happened in the room. We'll never know. There was a settlement. There was no trial. But we know the seriousness of the charges. We know how close it got to trial. We know that he he, he did settle all those things. And, and that's part of the Kobe Bryant legacy, whatever it is. Um, you know, uh, that's that's just the way it is. And And I think we also know how cavalier he was once there was the first signs of accountability for what she was claiming was he was very matter-of-fact about it when the police questioned him that it was just almost utterly transactional which was really frightening yeah from, you know from my point of view. i'll say honestly it, it, you know i remember going back and reading after he died i guess that was the end of january i want to say um a couple months ago going back and reading but but the exact details of the sequence of events and some of the things he said i i I have to admit I've kind of forgotten, so I wouldn't want to. I wouldn't want to comment on them. Mm -hmm. But, 
but yeah, I mean, this was a big story for a long time. Yeah, and it was serious, and uh, you know, and 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 that statement he made after the settlement that he, the thing that I remember most, going back and looking at it again, you know, is that he said he came to realize that she did not view this encounter as consensual. Right. Um, that's an important part of the story. One of the, and I think, in my opinion, that was a very brave position you took to, I do think it's important to maintain accountability for both sides of the ledger of what these people do, that there's a fair adjudication after they're gone. I'm not for deifying these people that have mm -hmm. harmed somebody like that. Um, but it is awkward. Like, it's a weird spot to be in, in the immediate aftermath of a death. Um, you had a, a very prominent story about Qatar and the horrendous situation there that I think shocked a lot of people. Um, that is very germane, I think, to boxing in that boxing is going for the money that's being offered through Saudi Arabia. We saw J Anthony Joshua go over there and fight against Andy Ruiz Jr. It sounds like Eddie Hearn, a very prominent promoter in boxing, if there's money available, he has no moral qualms whatsoever about going over there. And even a lot of journalists are sort of saying, it's a miracle at how fast these venues can be built. Well, your article was very much about it's not a miracle. It's something quite, quite no, horrendous. I, 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 yeah, I thought that it was an important story. It was about um, Qatar, Qatar uh, uh, being the host of the 2022 World Cup, the world's most popular event, the World Cup the Men's World Cup that takes place every four years. And this tiny country, very rich, tiny country in the Persian Gulf, uh, getting the rights to play host to this event, um, FIFA awarding them. And it seemed not even taking into consideration uh, in any way um, the fact that everything that would have to be done to make this World Cup possible in terms of infrastructure and hotels and stadiums, uh, this would be work done by um, by migrant laborers, many of them from South Asia, many of them from uh, from Southeast Asia as well, who 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 go to Qatar and um, are basically deprived of fundamental rights. Uh, they they live in very um, squalid circumstances. They work in dangerous conditions. They work in high heat. Uh, it's very hot, obviously, in the Gulf. And um, you know there are estimates that you know thousands would die to make this World Cup in Qatar possible. And that was the story. And I, I think it did, you know, uh, open some people's eyes and you know put some pressure on the government. Um, you know that was. Five years ago, I think that story was on, and mm -hmm. you know, I, I I still keep um, my you know I, I still try to maintain some knowledge of the situation, although I'm not covering it on a daily basis. And you know, there was um, there was at the time kind of an uproar, uh, but a lot of it's died down. Some conditions have changed. I understand others have not. Uh, it's still far from ideal, um, you know, but those are, you know, those are the kinds of stories you hope you do and people notice and they make, they make some impact.
looking ahead, um, what 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 is a if if you're forced to do a book, I'd like to know what that book would be. If wow. I, I'm I get to well, assume them. And I actually need some help from you on this book. Uh, <laughs> I, I do. I, I want to write another book. I wrote. I wrote a couple of books in like two years uh, back when I was a much younger, um, a much younger man, and I thought I would do it every year. I thought I'd do it every year and a half, yeah. like my dad. Like, oh, it wouldn't be that hard. And uh, not going to make excuses, but uh, my responsibilities at ESPN expanded. Uh, my family expanded. That is, I got married and had three kids. Um, and uh, those hours between midnight and 3 a.m. when I would write, when I wrote those books, those uh, those don't really exist as an option right now. I'm so, uh, <laughs> there are other things going on. But I, I do, I want to write a book, and I've been thinking about it for a long time. Um, I want to write a book, something about, my dad and myself in sports, something about fathers and sons in sports, um, something about some of our stories, his stories, my stories, but that's pretty, it's <laughs> pretty vague in how you organize it and how you write about yourself. Uh, that's a tall order. I mean, I know there are a lot of, uh, I've, I've, you know, I've been trying to read some memoirs, um, that, that are in the same ballpark. Frank Graham's affair, Frank Graham Jr.'s A Farewell to Heroes, which Mark Kriegel sent to me, hoping it would inspire me. Um, one of Mark's few failures. Um, <laughs> the book's inspiring. I just haven't done anything. Um, you know, I don't know. I don't know how to do it, how to approach it. Um, the kind of deep dive historical research stuff that I did with the Jesse Owens book and the Jim Braddock book, that, I don't know if I'm up for that right now. Yeah. Um, okay, you're forced to do the documentary you would most want to work on, either investigative or doesn't have to be, but what would that project be? And money is no resource. You get to go after whoever you want. Wow, that's, that's interesting. So, you know, I got to do that essentially for 30 for 30 last year with Buster Douglas documentary, okay. uh, which, which has always been for me, you know, to me in my lifetime, I'm 50, you're 40, uh, 41 or 40, 40, right? 40. 40. Uh, I don't want to rush you. Um, no, I'm on the way. There are two moments that rise above the others. And it's it's Douglas Tyson and it's the Miracle on Ice. I got to do a show about the Miracle on Ice, which was a lot of fun recently, sitting down with the Ruzioni, Johnson, and Craig. We watched the game together. I think two out of three said they'd never seen the game. Wow. Which, until we sat there and watched it together, which was awesome. And I did the Buster Douglas Mike Tyson documentary with my colleague Ben Hauser, and I just love that story. The way you know all the elements of it—it's all there. It's—it's it's like what you're talking about with the Bobby Fischer thing. It's like a movie. Like you wouldn't believe it if somebody made it up, and yet they're still trying to make a movie. By the way, um, they are, huh? They're trying to make a movie about it. Oh, they've always been. Yeah, they've been for years trying. Vince Vaughn at one point had the rights. I don't think he does anymore. Um, huh. Trying to make a movie. It would be a great movie. Um, sure. I mean, it's all in the execution, of course. But, um, you know, the thing, I, I know this sounds dry, but to me, there's something great to be done about the 1968 Olympic track and field team. And I pitched it a few years ago. Maybe somebody did it since then, but, you know, arguably the greatest team in any sport ever assembled. And, you know, of course, you've got Smith and Carlos. And, I mean, just in terms of the athletic achievements, then, you know, 
Beeman and Evans and Toomey and Order. Uh, I mean, I think, I, you know, it's weird. Maybe somebody already did one. I haven't looked it up. Al Order is a guy I'd like to make a documentary about. Unfortunately, Al is mm. no longer with us, but it's kind of a, a joke around the office at ESPN, my obsession with Al Order. But when people ask me who's the greatest clutch athlete of all time, think about this, Brent. Al Order won the discus four consecutive Olympics, 56, 60, 64, 68. Three of the four times, I hope I don't get this wrong, Bill Mallon, the Olympic historian, would be better at this. Three of the four times he won with the longest throw of his life. On all four occasions, wow. he was competing huh. against the world record holder. Um, on the one of the occasions, he'd just come off huh. a, a horrific car accident and somehow got himself in shape for the games. Uh, imagine that, you know, imagine what it takes to be at your absolute best when it absolutely matters most. Not once, not twice, not three times, but four times. And I know people say, oh, well, it's just the discus. I'm like, discus is a sport that people all over the world compete in, that they've competed in for thousands of years. And I knew Order. He was a great guy. Um, I think Al Order is a great story. Mm -hmm. Jeremy, thank you so much for this. This was a real treat. I appreciate yeah. it. I love talking to you. It's always a pleasure. We do this without recording, I would hope. And um, you know, be safe. Maintain the proper social distancing for now. But when those restrictions, we hope sooner rather than later, can be lifted, let's, uh, let's get together. Definitely. Yeah, thanks so much. And you too. I hope your family's safe. This is Thank you. Well, that was just a four-year-old flushing the toilet, if you heard that. So that's a nice little sound effect at the end. Annabelle needs her daddy. Take care, that's man. Pleasure. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Tourist Information. The producers for this show are George Alarcon Swaby, Dolgan Media, myself, Bryn Jonathan Butler, and our audio editor is Anda Salaji. Thanks for listening. <laughs>